Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rounding the Earth, the podcast edition. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, and of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the Earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And as always, I do not do it alone. Please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host, Matthew Crawford, who is somewhere different than usual. I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I've been uh, attending a Children's Health Defense Conference for the last couple of days, uh, where it ended last night, um, and it was, uh, uh, my only complaint about it is that it was too short, uh, though they had it on the tail end of um, Weston A. Price Foundation's conference, so um, being the first Children's Health Defense Conference, I think they just wanted to see, they, they just wanted to hold one first, but there were so many people that, um, you know, I wanted to talk to. And, uh, you know, had hours of conversation with people, but there wasn't enough time to, to talk to everyone. But uh, I, I know you're jealous that I got to talk to Robert Barnes today. Um, and, and I thought that I had missed him. I tried to, to say hello a couple of times, but um, we, we wound up at the crepe shop with him today, uh, <laughs> uh, eating uh, brunch this morning. So um, the question in everyone's mind, what flavor of crepe does Robert Barnes enjoy? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I didn't bother. <laughs> I didn't look. Um, we, we were we were on our way out and he um, he was uh, sitting down eating with one of his attorneys. Um, so we said hello and, and chatted for about 15 minutes. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I mean, there were so many people that I met here um, and talked with talked with um, Robert Malone and his wife for a couple of hours. Uh, but, um, you know, unfortunately, somebody like Meryl Nass, who who really, you know, you would think she would be in attendance, but she's under attack by um by like medical boards in maine and that's going on this week and i would encourage people to look up and see where they can see uh, I, I know the first part of that was streamed i'm sure people will be streaming the second part of that at some point well lots to get into and maybe we can stick around for a couple minutes at the end and go just a little deeper into your uh, your experience this past weekend but we are not alone today we have uh at the moment one very special guest and possibly up to three uh, more special guests. Please allow me to introduce a true hero, Dr. Brian Tyson. Hello, sir. Hey, guys. How are you? Doing very well. well how are things me. down there in sunny California? Uh, beautiful, actually. About 75 degrees and sunny and, and no wind today, so that's great. Rock on. Rock on. Um, so we are here to talk about uh, some things that are... Uh, not going so correctly, I think, in the world of uh, of physicianship, if that's a word. Um, we're experiencing something very strange, and we were talking a bit before the show about how people who are professionals in the field of treating patients are being told that if they don't do and say this, uh, they are now misinformation spreaders. What exactly does that even mean, Dr. Tyson? 
Yeah, I mean that's that's been the question is is you know what is misinformation? What's disinformation? Um, and and since when is misinformation considered quote illegal? Um, you know, I mean when when do we have or since when does a agency such as a medical board have the authority to to override the U.S. Constitution of for uh, freedom of speech? Uh, you know, AB, AB, uh, California AB uh, 2098 is really what we're discussing. Um, and the fact that they passed the law that says you cannot basically go against the CDC or the NIH and its guidance or recommendation um, regarding COVID-19. Now, Gavin Newsom in his letter stated that they would not go after physicians for social media or news interviews um, as such because they believe that that is protected under the First Amendment. However, my case with the medical board is exactly that. The complaint was, I did a news interview with One American News and they didn't like what I said on the news and they said that I'm spreading misinformation. Um, and so I got a board complaint and I'm going through a quote investigation um, for exactly what they said they were not going to do. Um, so, I mean, so th that's the question is, is when does an agency such as the CDC, NIH, who don't take care of patients, right? Let's, let's make that crystal clear. They don't take care of patients. Even our public health department out here doesn't take care of patients. Get to tell a physician who is practicing how to take care of patients that we see in our clinic every day, right? I mean, that's that's the difference. I went to school, I did my residency, and I've been practicing for almost 20 years. Um, if a patient comes to me and they're sick, my job is to evaluate them, decide what treatment options are available, use drugs that are, are in my toolbox or procedures that are in my toolbox to, to help them get better. Um, and I should be able to do that freely using my medical judgment. Um, and I think anybody in my position would say that that's how you practice medicine. Sounds what it means like to be a diagnostician. Right? So, so at what point does the CDC have the authority to come in and say, well, doctor, what you're doing is wrong because the data we're reading or the reports we're getting suggest that you're doing something wrong without, without talking to me, without getting my data, right? Without looking at my results. And, you know, I mean, Matthew knows very well what we're talking about because he wrote the paper on our outcomes, right? On, on treatment of COVID-19. So we have verified results. We have a spreadsheet now of over 18,000 patients um, and, and nobody in the state of California, nobody in the public health department, nobody at the CDC or the NIH has ever asked me for my spreadsheet, uh, which is very detailed um, when it comes to treatment or even reinfection rate. Now, they did take my data when it came to the demographics. They took my data when it came to the positivity numbers. And they took that information and the, the state of California actually published it but they would not look at the treatment data. 
They Picking and choosing according to what fits their interests, huh? Right, exactly. And we had that discussion, remember? And we even called. And you called and you said, yes, uh, we are getting their reports and we do verify the data and we do look at, at, at everything that they're doing, except the treatment data. They did not want to know what the treatment data looked like. Um, and so <clears throat> we've been basically handcuffed as physicians now that if we say or go against anything that the CDC is saying, and, and we've seen over the last two years, you know, what they say today turns out to be wrong, you know, six months from now, right? How many times have we seen that? And that's not and, me, and, you and know, you know right, right or wrong. Like, you know, that, that's one issue. Right or wrong is one issue. Um, I want to say this for the audience before we bring up uh, Mary, Mary Bowden's with us now, but I, I want to say for the audience before we, we continue down that line is, this is this is actually what science is about. What's going on, what the authorities are doing is anti-science, and I'll justify that this way. There are several points in history that you might call the beginning of science. One of those is the debates between um, uh, a Muslim educator and mathematician and scientist named uh, Ibn al-Haytham, and he was debating with the, um, the imams, uh, I, I believe is the right terminology, um, who were the, they, they were the holders of truth. And he said, you know, wisdom dictates that your truth must be tested against reality. And he was the guy who came up with, um, he, he was um, famous for optics is, is his primary, um, you know, place in history. He, he you know, figured out that uh, light had, to, uh, that the images were being inverted going through the lenses of your eyes. And then your brain sorted it out after that, right? And um, and he had to, you know, come up with ways to sort of demonstrate what was going on. Um, but he pushed back at authorities who said, we are the arbiters of truth. We are the ones who decide what is true and false. He said, wait a minute, you know, wisdom dictates that we take another approach. And that and this distinguishes science from anti from pseudoscience or anti-science, right? So it, it is the authorities themselves. They they are really the only people who can be, you know, purely anti-science. And that is when they they express um, themselves as the arbiters of truth. Why don't we bring uh, Mary in now? Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stream. Dr. Mary Talley Bowden. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for joining us. And, um, you know, it, it occurred to me, we haven't even had Dr. Tyson introduce uh, himself to the audience. So how about this? Let's use this <laughs> opportunity. Dr. Tyson, do you want to just very quickly, for those who aren't familiar with your work, give just a quick bio, and then we'll have the same from you, Mary. How does that sound? Sounds good. Um, real quick. Um, I'm Dr. Brian Tyson. I am a uh, board-certified family medicine physician. I've got 13 years of ER experience. We opened up our own urgent care out here about four years ago. Um, I am an early treatment expert on COVID-19. Uh, we've treated over 18,000 patients successfully. Uh, if you started treatment before day seven, we have a 100% success rate. We wrote a book called Overcoming the COVID Darkness, uh, which was the number one on uh, Amazon for uh uh, you know, in the science uh, sector, uh, still available. Um, and that's basically who I am. Wonderful. And how about you, Dr. Bowden? Thank you. I'm uh, Dr. Mary Bowden. I'm an ear, nose, and throat and sleep medicine specialist in Houston, Texas. I sort of stumbled into COVID um, just out of necessity and demand because patients were telling me that their primary care doctors were doing nothing for them. I haven't seen as many patients as Dr. Tyson, but I have treated over 4,300 patients. And again, you know, everybody that received early treatment is still alive. Um, so I, 
I, you probably wouldn't even know who I was were it not for Houston Methodist Hospital. Um, I was <laughs> quietly <laughs> plugging along, but here I am. And, you know, I, I'll jump in. I'll mention this. Um, I saw the um, the press conference. I didn't know who you were. Um, and and we, this is the first time we've spoken. But uh, uh, I, I watch a lot of, you know, these the videos, press conferences, everything while I'm working a lot of times. And and I stopped. There was this one part. Um, and, and this was really this was um, when I was like, OK, who's this doctor? She's new. Uh, th- you were you were explaining your story. You know, and, 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 and I could sort of see I could see in your face that you never expected to be in front of the microphone, you know, talking with these people and, and, and you got, you kind of got harassed by the press. There was somebody who jumped in and said something about, you know, um, treating, uh, treating with medicines that weren't approved and you turned and you were just, you know, like, like almost puzzled, like, you know, off-label medicine is like half of what we do, or I can't, I can't remember what you said, but it was, it was just sort of matter of fact, like, like, you know, you really don't know what medicine is, you know? (laughs) Uh, But I mean, like, not that you wouldn't have had a discussion about it, right? But they were clearly just aiming an arrow at you at that moment. And, uh, and and I sort of feel like, um, uh, like, to me, that's sort of, uh, you know, your defining introduction to this whole controversy. Um, But what is going on now? Um, You know, uh, you know, how are you under attack? And, and, and that's what we invited for you guys to explain today is I know that you are under attack in many ways and in different ways. It's different in different places right now. But um, how are they coming after you right now, Mary? Well, right now, you know, I, I think I've done most of my fighting back. I don't have any new attacks. Um, I still have, I have three complaints against me to the medical board that are you know, 11 months old and just rot, you know, just sitting there stagnating and nothing's being done. That's frustrating because I, I realize there's not much I can do. Uh, in terms of Methodist, I mean, I'm suing them for defamation. Um, so, you know, uh, and then I'm suing um, another person for defamation who also just merciless, she had a million followers on her TikTok channel, just completely went after me. Um, so I don't, I mean, I feel like if anything, I'm on the upside at this point. I mean, I've, I've gotten, I've reached the low point <laughs> at this point. It's all upside from here on out, but. So it gets better. That's good to hear because I think the process here is a lot of what's being weaponized. You know, we see uh, in specifically in the context of, of physicians like yourselves, but also just more broadly, the challenging of various seemingly out of nowhere dictates um, wind up not being decided on at all. They wind up just getting dragged out in a court system where or, you know, or a a tribunal type system where it's the taxpayer paying for the lawyers of the people, you know, putting uh, these things in place. And so the fact that you're able to kind of say you're on the upside of the process uh, is very good news. That's very inspiring. And I think we're seeing that in some other areas as well. Um, So there's a little white bill. Um, this is a good comment that came in on on uh, on Rumble. Quiet Coney says the CDC does not have authority at all. They are an advisory organization. I want to hear more about this because we hear. So as a lay person, someone who is more of a patient than anything else, I hear about the CDC, the NIH, the NAID, the FDA, and everyone sort of knows what the FDA does. But what about the rest of them? They're all kind of new to me over the last couple of years. So to people who aren't as, you know, professionally in the know, what is the CDC? What exactly do they do that differentiates them from your doctor or from the FDA? Uh, How could you explain that to us? 
Brian, I'll let you answer. Well, I mean, so the CDC basically is the Center for Disease Control. Okay, so what they do is they look at data around the world and they're supposed to report on that data to help us physicians make better decisions when patients say want to go to India or they want to go to Eastern Asia or they want to, you know, track an outbreak of Zika in Florida um, or TB cases in, in El Centro. Um, you know, it's basically a reporting agency. That's what their job is, you know. Get data from infection rates around the world and around the United States. Report on that data and let us know, hey, there's an outbreak of influenza A right now in El Centro, right? So we need to know that. Um, I was the one who broke that there was an outbreak of enterovirus D68 in El Centro. I reported that to the public health department. They, they got the data. They started looking at it and they sent out an advisory to all the other physicians. That's how these agencies are supposed, that's how the CDC is supposed to work. Give us the data, let us know where the outbreaks are, so that way when patients want to travel and they come to their doctor and say, hey doc, what vaccines do I need to go travel to, you know, the, the Middle East or to Eastern Asia? You know, what's going on right now around the world? If I want to go to Africa, if I want to go on vacation, what do I got to look out for? Right? Maybe we send them with some prophylactic antibiotics or maybe some hydroxychloroquine so they don't get malaria. Right. Um, so those 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 are the, the 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 tools they're supposed to give us as the physicians. Under no means is the CDC supposed to tell us how to treat. They give us the data that says, hey, you know, uh, malaria falciform is resistant to hydroxychloroquine. You're going to need to use something else. Right. They can give us that data so we can make better decisions, but they're not the agency that is supposed to tell us what we're doing when it comes to the practice of medicine or the standard of care. What is the authority that's supposed to do that then? So that usually comes down to the, the academy that you belong to, whether it's the internal, uh, internal medicine board, the family practice board, the pediatric uh, associations, um, you know, and when we sit down and we have our uh, conferences, we go over the, the, the data, we go over, you know, what we're seeing in our practice, what seems to work the best um, under certain circumstances. Um, and then we as a, as a collective of physicians will sit down and say, you know, under these specific uh, guidelines or these specific uh, uh, determinations, we're going to say this is the best practice, right? So, you know, Mary does ENT, right? So she does you know, tonsils and adenoids all the time, right? She's going to tell you there's the best way to do that procedure. And this is the best way that we found success, right? They sit down as, as a board and they say, yeah, we would go with this approach on, on, on this procedure. And everybody would say, that's the consensus. Yeah, that's how we're going to do it. So if somebody wanted to try to do that different and had a bad outcome, then they could say, well, you, you went away from the standard of care. Okay. Um, you can argue that under this circumstance, we had to use a different route or we had to do a different way. And then that's where the argument of, of saying, okay, well, yeah, let's sit down, let's have a peer review process. And peer review should be done by your peers, okay? Not by non-physicians, which is what's going on right now. Um, and, and, and that's how you get a true standard of care and consensus. So it's almost like, like the real attack on you 
um, maybe largely an illusion that's being cast and then drawn out. I know that both of you have mentioned, um, uh, Brian, you before the show and, and, and Maria a few minutes ago, um, the length of time that this process is taking. Like, like it, it's almost like an intentional dragging of the feet, an intentional, uh, we're going to respond to the last day. And I've, I've, heard, I've heard that um, in, in a number of scenarios from a number of people throughout the pandemic, including FOIA requests only fulfilled on the last possible day and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so hopefully, hopefully um, um, these these just end in uh, you know in, in no action. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think this is something that everybody needs to pay attention to, which is that you know how much of governance is destroyed by gaming of things like time and resources. You know, if, if you can, um, you know, if a trial is not going to take place for thirty years. You know, is, is justice ever being served if if uh, a process like this is not taking place um, within a reasonable period of time? Is that an attack on, you know, our, our institutions and, and our way of governance? And it, well, it's, it civil, it's civil liberties. I mean, it's civil liberty. Right. So, I mean, we have a right to a fair and speedy trial. I mean, that's that's, you know, part of part of what we do. So now if you're going to sit there and tell me that I've done something, quote, criminal, according to AB 2098, Right. Well, then I have a right to know what that is. But in the medical board realm, you know, these complaints come out anonymously. Right. We've, we've seen this go on and on and on. You know, well, anonymous, you know, uh, uh, people make make a complaint. And now we have to hire attorneys and now we have to set aside our schedule. And now we've got to do depositions. And, and where's the burden of proof? Right. I mean, these right. guys could just go out and, 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 and say anything. Right. And if you, yeah, I was so yesterday I was submitting a couple of VAERS reports and on there it says, you know, it's imprisonment. You know, it's a felony to submit a, a false VAERS report. Yet you can submit a false uh, report against the physician and nothing will happen to you. Out of curiosity, I'm I'm familiar with that particular line, you know, and and it's it's crazy that people still think that there's this epidemic of false VAERS reports. Uh, I'm sure they are there, uh, but to a degree where it matters, I'm skeptical. Have there been instances that you uh, both are aware of where someone has uh, has been sanctioned for submitting a false VAERS report, like where that that statute that warning has been enforced? Has that happened? I haven't seen it. I'm not aware it, of it, but I haven't dug into that. I, I think I've seen the entire spreadsheet of false reports. There's there's a um, the woman, I can't remember her name right now, uh, who runs Open Vares. Um, I think she's the one who kept a spreadsheet that, that has been shared with me. And there are, you know, a, you know, you don't have to scroll much to have read the whole spreadsheet from the entire history of errors of some seven digit number of reports. You know, maybe there's like 30 or, or 40 that are either false or joke reports that people inserted into it. But it's clearly it's clearly not much. You know, it's maybe one in 100,000 reports. I mean, what I've found is a, a vast underreporting because I see patients over 10, about 10% of my new patient appointments are for people with ongoing reactions to the vaccines. And invariably, these reactions have not been reported by their primary care doctors, even though the primary, primary care doctor is well aware of what happened. Now, how do you, because I think like we're talking about, you know, science or consensus is it's by design supposed to be challenged and broken down. You're never supposed to just settle on something and say, that's it. 
the, quite literally, science is settled. We're never touching this again. So to to try to really drill in on this, how do you determine in in your practice what leads you to to believe a patient is likely injured by these shots? Um, what like what what is sort of the the indicator that that's what you're dealing with? Especially given the broad spectrum of of symptoms, I imagine what what sets you down the path of investigating that broadly speaking versus any other ailment that they may be suffering from? Well, something that's outside of the bell curve, right? Something that shouldn't be happening in a patient of this age that doesn't make sense, that the timing is related. So, I mean, you don't always know, but it's, it's, it's usually pretty obvious based on their history. You know, Brian, you, you see the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you you hit it right. Is is you're we're seeing things that that are happening to people that shouldn't be happening to. You know, when a thirty year old comes in with you know the inability to move and shaking uncontrollably, um, and it's not it's not a seizure, um, and she had her vaccine or booster, you know, thirty days ago, uh, you know, I mean, you 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 have to start putting these links together. Um, and, and, and if it's not the vaccine, right, then what is it? Right. Right. And so, so if it's not, let's, let's say it's not, and let's go down the road. Well, then what is it? And you can't find that out. Well, then you still got to go back to, well, then maybe it was the vaccine. Like we don't see vaccine reactions. Sure we do. Okay. So let's move to another aspect of this. Um, who are, or who runs the medical boards and where does their authority come from? Mary, who runs the medical boards of Texas? Uh, well, it's kind of outside my lane, but I believe the governor appoints the people to the medical board and they're not all physicians, but I can't tell you what percentage are non-physicians. Um, but I believe it's a governor appointment, at least in Texas. Brian, how does it work in California? Yeah, it's the same. They're they're appointed. Uh, we now have more non-physicians than physicians that sit on our medical board. Uh, the chair of the medical board is actually an attorney. So that, that tells you everything you need to know. So so politicians decide these boards, which then have the ability to to attack you and your resources um, over what what is ultimately your job, which is being a diagnostician and using your training experience and education to decide what is best for each patient that you care for. Correct. And well, this yeah. is I mean, what the board, is. the board is designed to, to, you know, keep the public safe from drug abusers and sex offenders. And I mean, they serve a purpose because there are doctors out there that do bad things, um, but they should not be, prosecuting doctors for using a very safe off-label medication that's safer than Tylenol. I mean, that's, that's not the purpose of the board, but that's how so, it's So begun. perhaps um, the, the boundaries of their statutory authority uh, have been stretched beyond what people imagined that their, that their um, charters or, or their, uh, their legislation meant. Is that, right. Is and that exactly. Because I mean, you know, you, the boards were put together to make sure physicians had the credentials to practice in their state. You know, I, I went to medical school in the Caribbean, okay? So that has to be verified, right? So you need a board, you need a group that says, send me all of your certificates, send me where you did your residency, send me all of your stuff, 
make sure that you who, who you say you are that yes you did go to school here you know we verified you graduated we verified you went to a residency program you know you don't have any outstanding lawsuits your criminal background is 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 you know not there you know yeah you are the, the person you say you are and that's what the medical board's purpose was okay was to just verify doctors for who they were that the training that they say that they have is legit and that there's no ominous signs that this person's you know this doctor is going to go out and harm people or they're going to portray themselves as a doctor and they're really not right that's what the boards were supposed to do right and 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 they gather the information they verify the information and they make sure you stay competent right so if i all of a sudden got you know five malpractice lawsuits you know because i want to give botox into you know you know uh, an area that you're not supposed to give Botox into, right? And all of a sudden, I'm having all of these bad outcomes, right? The public should know that. And, and, and that gets reported to the medical board. The medical board says, hey, doctor, what are you doing out there? You know, why are all these malpractice claims going on? We're going to suspend your license and look into this, and we're going to figure out what's really going on, right? That's what the medical boards were standing. Not to sit there, and, and, and now they've gone into this world of, quote, unprofessional conduct, Right. Well, unprofessional conduct is supposed to be you got arrested, you know, for, you know, assault and battery or you got arrested for sexual assault or, you know, you, you got you got arrested for, you know, a DUI or you got arrested for you know selling drugs, you know, from Mexico. Right. That's what that's that's what unprofessional conduct is. Not, oh, we saw you on the news and you said something we don't like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Um, I, I have charges of unprofessional conduct because I said ivermectin works on Twitter. Which is ridiculous because uh, and I got in a bit of a Twitter spat with someone, uh, which I try to avoid doing, um, who who argued to me, uh, which, you know, <coughs> all power to them, that that ivermectin was uh, shown to work in vitro but never in vivo and i asked like could you elaborate like what mechanism of action are you referring to and anyway the point being ivermectin works if that as a soul you know a solitary statement is considered like what i mean surely you could you would admit it's in the context of covid but to to assert that ivermectin does nothing of benefit is is uh is odd to me you know there are i think robust arguments probably still to be made about quality of of you know clinical evidence uh the the whole rct argument but that just seems sort of besides the point if the whole goal here if we're in the biggest health crisis uh in a century aren't we sub- and especially if we're taking risks on never before used types of medicines and therapeutics and vaccines and such how can that same level of, you know, compassionate and, and careful uh, experimentation, uh, that's a bad word, I don't like that word, but, but how is it not that uh, physicians are being encouraged to do anything they can to help their patient, even if it's just to alleviate symptoms or to, you know, have less of a sniffle? Aren't these things supposed to be encouraged? Why is it that doctors are being attacked for doing so is it because these medicines aren't patented yeah the money the question yeah yeah, go ahead mary well i mean yeah you you can't you can't get that vaccine which is bill gates's silver bullet you can't get that passed if there's an effective treatment available 
the effective treatment that's available is not going to make any money. Um, so it's just follow the money. Um, and that leads me to ask, because I, I see this term grifter a lot uh, being applied to people who prescribe or who, who say anything positive about ivermectin, which I find hilarious because as far as I understand, there's no money to be made in ivermectin itself, right? Like it's, it's not something that generates profit for anybody at this point. Um, no, $110 yeah. a vaccine dose probably does. Yeah. Uh, yeah but don't I mean, worry, the I, government, I, I, I think, is still going to pay for that, but... Well, the government, the well, the government can only pay for it by printing more money. So um, we, we will pay for that through inflation. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Mary. Uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that the pharmacists make the profit off of ivermectin. I guess you could say that the physician makes a profit off of seeing the patient. Um, but I would have really preferred to see fewer patients during COVID, not as many as I did. <laughs> so. And, yeah, I mean, and, for, me, and, for, for me, it's always been the patients are going to show up at your office anyway. OK, because they're sick and they're scared. Right. And, and at the, the height of the pandemic, we had, you know, three, four hundred patients a day in our parking lot. Mm -hmm. How do you tell 300 people the CDC says there's no treatment? Go home. Hope you don't die. Right. How, how do you how do you look a nine year old in the eye? and say, hey, you're gonna be just fine. You're not gonna kill grandma when she's in tears because she has a positive COVID test and nobody wants to even see her or look at her or touch her or listen to her. You know, to me, doing nothing has never been an option. And, and that's what they wanted us to do. They wanted us to quote, do nothing, absolutely nothing. You know, but yet in the same breath, they want you to use experimental treatment that hasn't been proven. They want you to use experimental drugs, which have a 30 to 54% mortality rate associated with them. And yet we look at research on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and zinc and zithromax and steroids. And, and oxygen, for crying out loud, IV hydration, vitamin C, vitamin D3, right? In any, in all of those things put together as a toolbox, helped patients get better. I go back to what I told you earlier, which is we have a spreadsheet of 18,000 patients and all the treatment that they got. And not one person from the CDC or the NIH or the government or the state of California wants to know that data. I have chest x-rays that prove, prove a test of cure. You can see COVID pneumonia and later you can see resolution of COVID pneumonia with treatment. If that's not you know, uh, definitive science in the world that we live in, I don't know what is. Mm. And I've got hundreds of, of chest x-rays, even in pregnant you know, women. I, I pull, you know, it's, it's, and, it's and I pull up a chart on this. Yeah, you know, right now I, I've been at the, I, I'm in a hotel room because I've been at the Children's Health Defense Conference for a couple of weeks, but um, uh, I, I have a chart on, on one of my articles where um, 
early during the pandemic, Turkey decided to use hydroxychloroquine, I think azithromycin, um, and I can't remember if they use zinc or vitamins or, or, or whatnot after that, but, but you know, let's focus on these first two. Um, over the first 13 days after they adopted that protocol, uh, COVID pneumonia went down, I think it was 70%, um, you know, relative to the number of, of positive tests, the number of positive cases. And half of all U.S. COVID deaths have involved pneumonia. And I don't know if that's what, um, you know, if that's the, the most dangerous feature the two of you have seen in your clinics. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. COVID but, pneumonia was the killer. <clears throat> and it was an inflammatory I, process in the lung that caused acute respiratory distress syndrome. Period. So, you know, so even even if, you know, hydroxychloroquine, I, I think that hydroxychloroquine, I've seen enough data, I've looked at enough, you know, the early treatment versus late treatment data, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that hydroxychloroquine does act as an antiviral, but even if it doesn't, you know, it, it, when you're throwing the kitchen sink at the problem, when you're when you're attacking both the possibility of viral replication and the symptoms, um, you know, that uh, that seems like the way to go about things. And Liam, you were, you were stopping short of using the word experiment earlier. But uh, I would say that it's actually appropriate. You know, um, science is sort of, uh, we, we try to think of science as like a really well-organized process. But the fact of the matter is, every time we're learning to do anything, you know, and these are um, these doctors uh, join, um, sharing their time with us today as diagnosticians are always engaging in experimentation. Every new patient is in a, is in a sense an experiment because every one of our bodies is different. Every one of us is going to react uh, different ways, and and you know, and we don't, you know, there isn't some authority that knows the truth at the beginning of everything, right? So that and that that's the entire purpose of science to to establish yeah, and especially. And I'm going to add to that, Matthew, especially at a height of a pandemic with a new virus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we had never seen SARS coronavirus two before ever. Right. We saw SARS coronavirus one. Right. But those of us like myself who have seen that and has also have seen H1N1. Right. We can recognize acute respiratory distress syndrome on chest X-ray. We understand that coronavirus is a inflammatory response syndrome. OK, and I use the keyword inflammatory because it's the spike protein that causes inflammation, that causes the problems in the lung, that causes the hypoxemia and COVID pneumonia leading to death. So if you can stop the inflammatory process early on, you can prevent the COVID pneumonia, which causes death later on. That's why we have always been preaching early treatment is key. Get treated before day seven. Get treated before the cytokine storm, right? That is the inflammatory response that goes crazy and causes massive problems throughout your body, right? We know that. We can see it. So when you use things like hydroxychloroquine, which is a potent anti-inflammatory agent, and you use steroids like dexamethasone and budesonide, which also uh, inhibit the inflammatory process, just like we use with asthma, okay, which is an inflammatory process, okay? Mm. We use oxygen at low pressures to prevent barotrauma, okay? And we reevaluate these patients to make sure that they respond to treatment. That is medicine in a very small nutshell. That's what we know. In every drug that we've used, they are all FDA approved drugs. 
period. They're FDA approved. Now, they may not have a, quote, indication for COVID-19, which all that means is I can't go on television and run an ad that says budesonide can cure COVID-19. But as a doctor, I can prescribe budesonide to any patient that I want that I feel will benefit from using that steroid to prevent inflammation in the lungs. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, Taz says in 2021, my 93 year old mother developed mild upper respiratory symptoms and had a positive COVID test. She was treated with hydroxychloroquine already on zinc, vitamin D and vitamin C and was well within two to three days. And that's sort of your experience across the board, right? Um, now I'm, I'm, I have a bunch of questions in my head that just came up. The first one I'll pose is to, uh, Dr. Bowden, um, there was on the point of uh, of budesonide, and oh, sorry, and how that's um, it's it's used to respond to an inflammatory process that is asthma, right? Um, and it's it's if I'm not mistaken, it comes in the you know the the classic inhaler that that we see some people using sometimes. Now, in some of the research I was doing for a project, I learned that people with asthma were potentially, correct me if I'm wrong, underrepresented as a group in COVID cases where that was tracked. First of all, am I correct about that? Or is that just, is, is that factually true or false to your knowledge? Factually true. So you're, yeah, you're breaking up a lot. I think I heard the question, um, but yes, it, that is true. Um, and maybe it is because they're already using uh, anti-inflammatory treatment on their lungs and that's giving them an advantage over the rest of us. Oh, that's really good to know that that's true. Okay. Now, I also have heard the same thing about smokers and people with anxiety or depression. And I wonder um, if the same, uh, and I've brought this up with other doctors before, the, the, the discussion about nicotine potentially being in some way beneficial, uh, you know, block nicotinoid receptors or something, having something to do with how the, the uh, spike protein binds, so on and so forth, meaning smokers perhaps are also, despite being in the group that you would assume would be really at risk, um, if it is if I'm not completely wrong uh, in my assertion that they were underrepresented. Um, and then also those who are taking SSRIs, because if I'm not mistaken, that's why fluvoxamine appears to work because it's also an anti-inflammatory. Did I get all of that right? I, so my patient population is not heavy. I don't have a lot of smokers. I don't see very many smokers, but Good. that has been my, um, my experience is that, I, well, and I haven't seen a lot of smokers come in with severe COVID. So, uh, and there is data suggesting that there is an, some possible protection or smokers are not at higher risk of getting COVID or getting COVID pneumonia. I don't know what your experience is though, Brian. Um, again, I would, I would go with you. I, I don't have a high uh, smoking population out here, um, but what I do know is the ACE2 receptor uh, is, is the, the big one. Um, and those that we know have higher ACE2 receptor counts, i.e. diabetics, uh, obese, uh, those patients were at a much, much higher risk 
than those who had low ACE2 receptors, which are your kids. Um, and, and that's why we, we knew from the very beginning that children were not going to have a problem with COVID-19. Uh, and we were right all along, despite, you know, um, you know, the attacks that I received when I, when I came out publicly to say the kids should be left in school. Uh, because, again, what we see in the clinic uh, was, you know, kids getting symptoms for anywhere from 12 hours to two days. Uh, and they were better and they were, they were running around the house again. Um, but we knew it was ACE2 receptor related because all the research being done on coronavirus um, and these gene insertions was that it was binding to the ACE2 receptor. Um, so kids have a, a very low ACE2 receptor threshold. Uh, where your older adults have a higher because your ACE2 receptors go up with age as well. So, that, I mean, it was, it was just, you know, if the virus binds to that, we know that those who have more receptors are going to have more problems. Um, the other population which we thought we thought would have a really hard time would be your lupus uh, and your rheumatoid arthritis and your immunosuppressed. Lo and behold, that wasn't the case. Why? probably because of a lot of the medications that they're on for anti-inflammatory purposes, right? Autoimmune uh, typically have a lot of inflammation uh, problems. And so they're on anti-inflammatories like hydroxychloroquine, Plaquenil, right? I mean, we've seen, we've been using this drug for, for, for years and years and years. Um, why did Africa not have a, a high uh, mortality rate compared to the rest of the world? Um, you know, how about Southeast Asia? Uh, where, you know, hydroxychloroquine is given out constantly uh, for malarial prophylaxis. So, I mean, you know, we need to look at inflammation, inflammatory process. Those who got prevented early did well. Those who didn't, didn't do well. I mean, and that is, that is basic known fact at this point in time. Um, and we would have all lost our license, you know, uh, thanks to Gavin Newsom had this bill been passed two years ago, because everything that we have been saying, you know, when I even came out and said, listen, guys, I'm seeing patients fully vaccinated getting COVID pneumonia. And I was told, okay, in the board of supervisors meeting that I am lying through my teeth. That is impossible because the CDC and Anthony Fauci and the president said, if you get vaccinated, you will not get COVID. You're a liar. I said, really? That's funny because I've got a list of them in my damn clinic. Come talk to them. Come talk to the patients. You know? So, so at this point, so there's there's this debate. There's this debate over, you know, science of each of these treatments. Um, and and we could discuss this all day long. And, and we've, we've done so on a few occasions. You know, the, the WHO points to, you know, experiments run, you know, with a median time of seven to nine days after symptom onset, which is which is just it, it's absurd for an antiviral. One of the things that I have worried about is the separation of society that goes along with these attacks on doctors. Right? I feel like um, you know, Pierre Corey showed on, on Twitter a photograph of hydroxychloroquine um, available out of a vending machine in an airport in Mexico, and I think ivermectin was also in in that picture. Uh, one of the things that I've worried about is that a certain portion of our society has simply separated itself from having to deal with uh, legal restrictions that they are that they're ignoring that are being pushed at the rest of the population through you as the medical professionals. 
right? If they can stop you from treating the poor, then ultimately they have forced, um, you know, and I don't want to just say poor, um, any, anyone of not of, of hefty resources, right? Um, you know, um, middle class and, and below, um, they are ultimately forcing all of those people to play a more expensive game perhaps, but they already know. I mean, they, they, they know they can jump on a plane and get medical treatment of their choice. And not everyone else has that, that opportunity. And whether or not that's true in all cases, whether or not that's the way everybody's thinking, it feels like that's the reality that we're moving toward. And, and I want to throw that out there. I still, you know, I still don't have a full understanding of, of how these attacks on you have been orchestrated, why it is that, that the medical boards, you know, e even between states, you know, certainly these aren't uniform across all states, but it seems more uniform than I would have expected. And the fact that even in Texas, that this could be stretched out for 11 months, um, that worries me. And it worries me. Um, it, it feels like a separation of society. It feels like it feels like rule of law has been um, uh, turned by the made by the labyrinth of bureaucracy. How is it that people can interface with this process, right? Um, I mean, they can they can vote. Maybe they can try to get in a governor in their state, or uh, you know, more people in Congress who are going to. Liam, um, look at these issues in, in a reasonable way and in a way that is helpful of all people. Um, but, you know, what, what else can they do? How else can they interface with the problem? Well, the, start with your state legislators. I, I hear this over and over again from uh, lawyers and politicians that people need to really connect with their state legislators and meet with them in person or at least call them. A letter's not nearly as effective. I believe we're in an information war uh, and I believe social media is a necessary evil and that people need to get out there and just keep spreading the, the misinformation as much as they can and stand up to these tyrants. Um, you know, don't comply. Don't don't go along with it. Don't wear the mask when they tell you to wear the mask. Don't get the shot when they tell you to get the shot. Um, certainly don't do this for your kids. You know, take them out of school if you need to. Um, so I think it's a combination of things. I, I have hope. I mean, did you see what just happened in New York? Uh, yep. the Port? I mean, that's amazing. That sets a big precedent. And hopefully, you know, that gives me a lot of hope. So in, in, you know, I, we've talked to Canadian doctors also, and, I, and I'm going to mention one. Um, I, I think that you both may know this person, but um, I'm not going to mention a name here. There's a doctor that, I, that I've spoken with in Canada numerous times. And, and what's going on in Canada is even more harsh, whereas in order to continue practicing as a physician, he has to allow the medical board there. I'm not even sure. It, it may be called something else, but he has to put statements opposite of what he believes on his professional website. And I wanted to say that out loud because I want people to understand as much as possible what's happening because it's happening a little bit differently in each country, but it, it seems to be focused, you know, perhaps, well, it may be focused everywhere. It seems like it's focused on the West. Um, you know, one thing that we've seen, I, I talked with um, Robert Barnes this morning about it. There are other nations pushing back in different ways. It is Africa who has 
most strongly pushed back, for instance, at the WHO. And, uh, and they, they may have bought us time. They may have saved us from uh, the WHO getting this, these treaties, you know, uh, more established around the world to where the WHO has some sort of extra governmental, you know, dominance over decision making. Uh, it's, it's very interesting to watch this. Um, but I, I, I guess I guess I, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to paint a picture. I'm trying to uh, you know throw pieces of this out there because I don't think any of us have a full understanding of where this is all coming from yet, right? We we all get together and we ask the question, you know, who is doing this? What are what is this being organized? And it feels like like it is coming. It, it is some form of global civil war, almost that is happening on an ideological end in some ways, but perhaps it, it's you know, about a few people taking control. Um, you know, where, where is it that the control comes from most of all in the American medical system? Who, who pharma, is it? I, guess, I don't know, that's hard. There's so many factors. Big pharma is a huge problem though. Um, it's funny when I drive to work, I, I, I get so triggered because Every advertising, every advertisement on the way to work, either on the radio or billboards, it's healthcare related, and it's a big. It's either a big hospital or it's big pharma, and uh, their reach is immense. Um, and there, it's like a, a a weed that's infiltrated our system in a bad way. So, I mean, uh, there's probably, you know, I could make some more. Um, theories on that, but I think the most obvious one is big pharma. I think a lot of people don't look beneath the surface because there's been a war on words for decades setting us up for this. Um, you know, when you see uh, uh, the name everyone presents, you know, that you put health in your name, you assume, you know, we're, we're looking at good people, you know, eco health alliance, you know, put alliance, put uh, um, aid in your name, right? And, and people have a certain level of implicit trust. You know, people don't necessarily know which, um, you know, charities are, are ones who um, embezzle money. People don't know. People don't even know whether that happens, right? Um, so, one, you know, one thing that I, that I want to point out to people is, um, you know, work, uh, communicate within your communities, right? Somewhere in your community is, uh, is uh, a Mary or a Brian, uh, a Dr. Uh, Bowden or a Dr. Tyson who, who can talk with you, you know, talk with your state, you know, state, just like you would go and talk with your state representatives about the legislation that occurs. Um, there are people in your community, you can find out whether or not they're really working for you, right? That's the, that's the key to, you know, being able to look people in the eye, being able to have conversations, being able to have, uh, you know, conversations in groups and in individuals and, and, and to judge all of those things, to be able to use your, your whole intuition along with your education uh, to sort these things out. And I think a lot of people are encouraged to, um, to sort them out in one way or the other. People who, um, whose, whose mental, uh, whose cognitive processes are more, are more sculpted by their education seem to look for information and more often than not take the words at face value. People who are more intuitive in their cognitive processes take face-to-face -face discussions. Um, they take what they learn from those at face value. We're seeing an instance in which those two groups of people are seeing the world very differently right now, right? And I, 
I, I would uh, recommend to people that that part of sorting this out, part of being able to deconstruct why your doctors are being attacked and how they're being attacked involves this split. And once you see it, you see a certain level of propaganda and you see you see a certain level of of organized, um, you know, violence isn't the word, but ultimately at the end of the day, uh, it gets close to that because when you can attack someone's resources for 11 months at a time or however long it's going to be, then you're ultimately, you know, taking away people's capacity to work for themselves and for other people. And so um, this is some form of a war that is being waged. And if you trust the people in your community or if you work toward networks of trust, then you cut off the possibility of your community being attacked without it being explicit. Yeah, and I think what we've seen a lot of is people realizing that they have to start taking on more roles than their box that they had thus far occupied. Um, for example, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Tyson, you ran for office recently. I did, yeah. I ran for Congress um, to try to make a difference. And, um, you know, it was, you know, we didn't succeed in getting through the primary, but it's still at the same time, we were able to reach a lot of people going to a lot of different events uh, to get the word out and, and making people aware of what's really going on. And I, I, I do want to explore that a bit um, because I think it's it's the right track. And I've seen other people do something very similar where um, and not not entirely in the realm of doctors, although we did have Dr. Ira Bernstein up here in Canada who ran um, for a member of provincial parliament, I believe it was in Ontario. And I think he had a very similar experience to you. But then you have individuals like um, like David Fryheit or Viva Fry, who's a uh, he's now in Florida, but he ran for the uh, People's Party of Canada as, you know, hopefully become a member of parliament. And that unfortunately didn't work out either. But the, the process of trying to if you're being governed by people who are actively making decisions uh, like we're describing um, at a certain point, it does seem logical to then you know, try to get a seat at the table making the decisions. Um, what what led you to choose that out of the many ways you could and have contributed and, and helped people? What made you choose to run for office specifically? Um, the the medical tyranny that that we we saw going on and and the lack of um, availability of the 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 local government and the, the federal government at a time of need. You know, so, you know, we were one of the hardest hit areas um, in in our basically nation, I think, um, you know, we we were flying out, you know, 12 to, to, to 14 people a day to San Diego. Uh, we had no resources. We have two rural hospitals um, and we couldn't get our local representatives, our state representatives, or even our federal representatives to even answer a phone call or an email. Um, it took a story being broken the New York Times or the, the LA Times that actually got national attention on what was going on out here. And we didn't get the National Guard out here until mid-June of 2020. You know, uh, you know the death rate was, was astounding uh, we have a high diabetic population, a high elderly population. We sit right on the border of Mexicali. We've got a lot of retired people who live in Mexico. Um, and it was just insanity out here 
trying to get a hold of somebody, you know, um, our, our public health office was closed. The public health officer had no resources. We had no testing. We had nothing out here. You know, it took me, um, I took out a $250,000 loan to buy tests from Korea out of a laboratory in Orange County. Wow. Um, to, to, to try to start getting an idea of what was going on out here in, in March, April of 2020. Like I said, I had 400 people showing up in my parking lot. Everybody's sick. Nobody knew what was going on. And we had to sort it out. We had to sort it out. We didn't have any, any help from anybody. You know, where was FEMA? Nowhere to be seen, right? Everybody's hiding in their damn basements. And, and we're out here trying to figure out how to make heads or tails of what's going on. So, you know, I mean, we, we put our big boy boots on and we started seeing patients. We started doing chest x-rays. We started treating. We started looking at research. We started doing everything that we do as physicians. And, and at the end of it, I'm like, listen, there's got to be a better way. We have to do things different. We need people who are going to be responsive at a time of need. And so I stepped up and I'm like, you know what? I mean, we need representation out here in our valley uh, because our representatives were from San Diego. Um, Imperial County has always been left out of everything. We don't have any state or, or federal representatives from Imperial County. Um, and so I decided I was going to try to make a run. And we did very, very well out here in Imperial County. Um, we didn't do too well up in the Riverside County area because that's where they had their uh, representatives already you know, set on who was going to do what. Is Riverside but, just a much larger population? Because I noticed that the, the there are three counties in your district, right? And that's yeah. where the majority of votes came from. Yeah. Came and that's where Riverside. the incumbent is, who's a Democratic Party incumbent. And you, you were just behind the top Republican vote getter, but you had really no support from the party, if I understand exactly. correctly. That's correct. Um, and, and, you know, uh, people out there looking for who they might vote for, um, you know, I guess we're, we're, we're past most all of the primary sort of stuff, but we have, uh, you know, election coming up and, you know, don't just look at parties, look at who, you know, look at what people are saying, what statements they're making, because um, as we talk with these, with these doctors and scientists around the country, um, there's something beneath the surface on the partisan level. Um, there, there are games being played. You, you know, you, you need to find out who the people are that you're looking at. You need to find out, you know, if you're looking at incumbents, you know, did they make, did they take any stand at all? Did they give any support to the people out there? Like, like, like Brian and Mary, who, you know, were doing the job that needed to be done that wasn't being organized by the, you know, bureaucratic agencies and, uh, and make your decisions that way. But also, um, you know, other people out there can run like Brian and it's going to be different in every single district. Uh, I talked to, uh, we, we, we had Liam Sturgis, who's up in Vermont, um, you know, much smaller state. Uh, but, you know, he, he ran and even though he wasn't a Republican, he won the Republican primary. So he gets the R by his name, but he's running as an independent. Um, but in New Jersey, you know, um, a, a trucker who stepped forward said, OK, I'll, I'll go do this job if you'll vote for me. Right. And uh, I, I uh, did he just barely win? Was that uh, I don't know. Does anybody know the selection? I can't remember his name. But it was it that was it I, I think he won. Yeah. Was it, was it the gubernatorial election or the congressional election? 
Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, also, by the way, you gave me credit for getting that R beside my name, but I think you meant Liam Madden. Um, That's what I meant, Liam Madden. Did I say, did I say Liam Sturgis? I'm used to saying yeah. Liam Sturgis. Okay. So. I have many alter egos. <laughs> but so I think I think it's clear the these attacks uh, that are, are really being woven into quite literally state law um, are designed to discredit and sort of shatter the professional, you know, within the system as it exists, make it very difficult to operate. But I'm curious about like we're talking about in the election context, the local level and trying to, you know, work on the same street that you live on um, in terms of changing minds. Dr. Bowden. How has I, I'm curious about the relationship with with patients, but also just your your community in general, the kind of people who would have already known you um, and, you know, extended family and people like relationships you have where uh, it seems to me those are also sort of the intention to to break like the, the more of a. Um, uh, untouchable person that can be made out of dissident doctors, the more successful the campaign appears to be. So I'm curious how you approached um, your individual relationships uh, in like, did you have people coming to you going, look at what they're saying about you? Is this true? Did you have people who wrote you off without even, you know, checking with you first? Um, or are you one of the very lucky people who has <laughs> very supportive people who, uh, who stuck with you the whole time? Um, but how did you approach it? What, what, how, what's your strategy for, you know, I don't pressure, I don't try to convert anybody to my cause, um, who knows me and it's usually deafening silence. And you know, the, the deafening silence are the people that don't agree with you and you just, you know, shrug that off and move on. I've made lots of new friends, lots of new connections. I'm not worried about it. Um, but thankfully, my immediate family has been very supportive. That ooh, that would that would be really tough. I know a lot of people are not as fortunate, um, but immediate families got my back, and I know who my friends are now. It's very clear, and I've got you know it, it definitely divided my practice because some patients fled, and and then but then I got a whole new crop of patients, and you know all those patients who come see me now, you know they they they're like minded, and that that's very nice to a nice environment to be in every day. Um, I think going out in public, I'm a, I'm a little like, I don't go to social events now because I don't, I don't want to worry about that kind of thing. I mean, I'll go to very small social events, but I would, I wouldn't go to a Christmas party or something like that. Um, I get a little nervous at sporting events for my kids, that kind of thing. Cause I, you know, they probably most of the people don't know who I am, but I still worry about it just because it was it was such a scandal when it hit. Um, but, you know, it's changed my life, but it's not, you know, it, I'm, I've dealt with it. It's fine. <laughs> it's, everybody's had a big, you know, commotion. I mean, every patient I talk to, there's there's some major issue in their family or their social life over what's happened. So I'm not alone. Yeah. How about you, Dr. Tyson? My guess is you've experienced something more or less similar. Um, uh, but uh, again, how what strategies like what what would you advise to people um, in who, who may or may not be physicians themselves, you know, who are encountering, uh, like Dr. Bonin said, everyday people encountering these splits in their families or these disagreements? Um, what, what's your experience been like at that local personal level and how do you or how have you approached that? So, you know, I've always taken the approach of do the right thing, 
right? So we try to do the right thing. And, and we don't like, like Mary, I don't go try to convert anyone. Uh, people show up to my practice. They know what we do. And word of mouth out here is, is a very, very powerful thing. Um, you know, we've treated so many patients out of urgent cares that it's, it's really hard to really now find anyone out here who has not been treated at one of our urgent cares or, or family member of somebody. Um, and when the, the outcry started coming that we were doing something wrong, believe it or not, it was funny. It was our patients who stood up and said, no, um, I got, I got treated, you know, and, and, and it worked, you know, board of supervisor got treatment and, and it worked. You know, um, CEOs and, and, and families of, of, of predominant businesses, very well uh, to do off businesses out here, um, they all did well. And so when you have a track record of success, you can't argue with that. How do you argue with success? You know, like I said, if, if, if I was doing something wrong, my clinic wouldn't be full. Right. Because because word of mouth would kill my business. Right. If, if, if I was selling snake oil and people were dying from from giving out the drugs I was giving, then I wouldn't have a practice. We wouldn't be having a conversation. Um, but the fact is, they talk about us because they know it works. They know it works. They know we're doing the right thing. And we have absolutely thrown a wrench in everything that they've been trying to accomplish through this pandemic. You know, as, 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 as evil as that may be, um, it's sad, but, you know, I've had patients who, who have thanked me so much for taking the time to be courageous and give them medications that ultimately saved their lives. Um, you know, I mean, two, two cases stand out to me. I had a guy who was who was seen by the ER was sent home and he says, I was lying in bed and I heard the, the, the helicopters flying over and I was just waiting for the day that I was going to be on one of those helicopters. Cause I knew that was going to be the death of me. He goes, I thank God that my daughter came in, picked me up out of my house and took me to your urgent care. <laughs> and he said, and three days later I felt better and I knew I was actually going to survive. You know, that was one huge case. Right. And another case was I had a patient who was in the hospital in San Diego. And their uh, son took him out of the hospital and drove him to the urgent care two and a half hours to get treatment because they weren't doing anything for him. And he also survived. And, and their family is, is one of the wealthiest families out here in the valley. And, and the fact that they trusted me to do that and the fact that we got the results that we got tells me we're doing the right thing. And if anybody wants to argue that, then have a conversation with me. Um, but I've always taken do the right thing um, and, and, and let the, the, the chips fall where they may. If I'm doing something wrong, my patients will let me know. I don't need the media telling me this. I don't need the newspapers telling me that. I trust my patients. My patients trust me, and that's the end of it. Well, um, we're we're getting close to end of time here, but um, I I want to um, 
I want to look at the big picture for a moment. I mentioned uh, Meryl Nass's story uh, at, at the beginning of the conversation. And right now, um, you know, she's under attack as much as anyone in Maine. She decided to just give up practicing medicine. And, uh, you know, fortunately for her or someone like uh, York Shang, um, Canadian surgeon that we had on the other day, um, you know, they were uh, you know, near the end of, of, of their careers in terms of practicing medicine anyhow. So it was easier for them to make a decision like uh, like early retirement. Uh, I think uh, Meryl Nass is taking an arrow for a lot of people right now. Uh, I would encourage people to go watch, you know, the streaming of of her discussions with the main medical board um, that are going on. I, I think one one is either today or tomorrow, I think is the, is the second one. Um, but also um, there were a couple of people who, uh, who we invited but didn't join us today. Uh, in fact, I saw Ryan Cole in person yesterday, so I think he's just in the middle of traveling. Um, but I, I wasn't sure what his story was. Actually, I didn't ask him uh, uh, yesterday, but um, is, is he under attack also by some sort of board or, or legal system? In Mo some way? Multiple he's board complaints, yeah, multiple board complaints. Okay, he, he's a pathologist. Is it the same? Is it the, is it the medical board still that that you know bears down on him? Yes. In okay. All right. Well, you know, people uh, look look these up and find out you know how it is you can support these doctors and you know find out which doctors you you would be most comfortable <laughs> you know taking your family to. Um, and uh, if I can get, I just want to highlight. We have uh, our friend uh, Rebecca, Red Flyer Media on Rumble, very kindly gave us a $10 Rumble rant and added this comment. I am lucky that Dr. Bowden is relatively close to me. Three-hour drive to see her is worth it. I would go see Dr. Tyson, too, in a heartbeat. And this is just one of what I know to be in the case of, for example, Dr. Tyson. You have an entire section at the end of the book uh, from... Uh, 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 Twitter uh, testimonials of people who you've helped and um, Dr. Bowden and Dr. Tyson, both you, you know uh, that you only see and hear a fraction of the amount of good you've done. And just by the limit of what the human mind can take in, there's always going to be a cap on what you actually experience, but the, the thousands upon thousands of people that you have not met and may never meet that you've helped uh, either save the life of or just uh, helped improve uh, some aspect of their life uh, is is monumental. So uh, I speak for understand everyone. the environment that we're in. Yeah, exactly. So I think I know I speak for everyone when when I say thank you both so much. Um, this has been tremendously important the last two years, I mean, uh, and and this conversation as well, of course. But <laughs> um yeah, and through the chat, like people are are engaging and thanking you guys and asking uh, clinical questions. There was one I wanted to bring up for you guys specifically. Um, yeah, uh, the the uh, the testing for which respiratory uh, illness these ta these uh, patients are are dealing with. And Dr. Tyson, it may have been before the stream that you were telling us a little bit. Uh, L L Junior Aaron says, just curious, did they test for influenza as well to rule it out or see if it was too part of the problem? Was flu testing essentially dropped? So that's a good question. What is the testing like in your practices? Are you going in and seeing if it is indeed a SARS-CoV-2 infection leading to COVID or if it's, you know, primarily influenza? Like, to what degree does it matter? To what degree do you in your practices uh, uh, go through that process? So initially, uh, we were running both um, SARS and influenza testing because we were still seeing a lot of influenza 
uh, late December, January. Um, and we were having some uh, kind of mixed results, negative tests, but, you know, fevers of 104 and some really, really sick patients. That was right before we even knew uh, SARS existed. Um, so we were testing a, a lot of things. Um, I have a respiratory panel machine. Um, it's a Quistat. It runs 30 different viruses and five different bacteria uh, that we do a lot of uh, testing on in our in our patient population. Because, again, I'm not completely convinced that it's just SARS. Uh, we were seeing a lot of co-infections, and that's been um, very helpful in in identifying new viruses coming around. Like we were seeing RSV in summer, which we typically don't see. Um, and so that was something to bring to other clinicians' uh, attention, um, you know, and, and seeing really what was going on. So yeah, we have we have a respiratory panel we use uh, that, that differentiates it all out. Yeah, I have the same panel. And then we also have a rapid test that does both <clears throat> flu and COVID, a rapid antigen. The other thing is, you know, flu doesn't cause you to lose smell and taste like COVID. So that was a right. big, you know, if, if a patient comes in with that, you almost don't even need to test them at this point. But um, yeah, that I love the panel that can distinguish from, you know, 18 different viruses. It's very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, and I think there, there's some interesting discussion, certainly that Matthew has had with um, uh, John Cullen is his name, I believe, recently about the role mm -hmm. that influenza may have uh played uh in a way that challenges what we've thought about um but it's good to know that yes indeed it is not the case that everyone simply stopped testing for the flu it is in fact a nuanced uh process that yeah, professionals for, like yourself for anybody, are still going for anybody watching i don't have a strong opinion yet um I, I i have this idea in my i wonder if there was a flu variant that was uh invisible to our current form of surveillance um, but that, you know, that to me, that's just it, it's it's a hypothesis that that is, you know, not well tested yet. But uh, I just wanted to throw that out because I know that uh, John goes further with a couple of his statements than I would want to go. Mm. Um, OK, well, you know what? Um, I think this has been a tremendous conversation. I've enjoyed this uh, tremendously and I have learned a lot. Uh, uh, it goes without saying when you talk to people who are, are good at what they do, who care about what they do and as Dr. Tyson, you you laid out so well, who choose to do the right thing, as you both have, um, you walk out uh, uh, a little bit more knowledgeable and feeling a little bit happier, which I do. So I want to um, give you both the opportunity to, if you'd like, can you tell us the names of your clinic or, or uh, if appropriate, how patients can reach out to you if they need help or want more information? Uh, for me, it's simple. It's All Valley Urgent Care. You can go to allvalleycares.com, allvalleycares.com, uh, and you can get a hold of us. We do telemedicine service, and we have inpatient um, in, or in-person clinic. Um, and I'm breathemd.org. I'm in Houston, and we do telemedicine. We do text medicine, which is even cheaper. We try to keep it affordable. We do very affordable exemptions. Um, and I also have to throw out myfreedoctor.com, which has telemedicine services in all 50 states. So that has been a tremendous uh, service for people that can't find help. They accept donations. That's how they survive. But if you can't afford to pay, you don't have to pay. Wonderful. Well, and I'll make sure to add all of those links um, into our description once the show ends. Uh, doctors, is there anything you want to leave the audience with? Any final sign-offs, um, Dr. Tyson? 
Uh, for me, it's just, you know, keep fighting the fight, guys. Don't don't lay down. If, you, if something doesn't feel right, uh, don't be afraid to stand up. Yeah, don't don't give up. I mean, don't go quiet now that, you know, the COVID's sort of quieting down. Please keep up the noise so that these people don't get away with what's happened. Rock on. Well, thank you both so much. And uh, I, I look forward to uh, hopefully speaking with you again soon. And again, we did have a couple other guests who uh, it, it turns out, unfortunately, we're not able to make it. So with any luck, we'll uh, be able to all connect together um, at the next opportunity. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Okay. Well, again, I've learned a couple of things and uh, been reminded of a couple of things that I uh, should be continuing to do, just generally keeping myself healthy. But what was your biggest takeaway from from this specific talk? Well, I, I think that the doctors are under a form of economic attack. I, I think that, that we are at a moment at which um, the world economy is very stressed. The uh, The currency system that we've been using for a very long time. I don't even want to just say the dollar economy. I think the fiat currency system that's been in use for 400 something years um, is stressed. And that um, that when the pie gets smaller, the politics get more vicious, right? And and uh, the, the, the pie has gotten smaller for most people. Um, but what I would tell people is, look, uh, you know, it's not as if technology is moving backward. Um, you know, do anything that you can do building a new business, uh, strengthening your community, uh, improving your education in some area that you need to understand better that you've, that, that has, has become apparent, um, as a weakness, um, you know, do the best you can to raise your kids. Uh, but, uh, find, find other people to do that hand in hand with. I do believe that, um, the numbers of people who are waking up to, to at least the stresses and difficulties, whether or not they all see perfectly eye to eye, that number is is getting larger very quickly. I believe. Mm -hmm. So, um, if there's you know a moment of positivity, it's that. And I do think that it's going to be a stressful world for a few years, but I think there is a very good chance that people wind up building something better. And yeah, I, I would encourage people. I, I plan to watch it as soon as I can. You know, go check out Dr. Nass's board hearing if you are interested in finding out. You know part of part of how this is going down part of what these stresses are that are being projected at these physicians yeah and yeah. and it looks like yeah, there's, like a, there's a, a live chat going, going and it looks like stuff might have even uh of import might have even happened while we've been talking so we can uh sign off and let people go jump over to that um last but not least dr Bison and dr bowden Yes, thank you to them again. And just last but not least, can you just so you contributed uh, a, an important part to overcoming the COVID darkness, um, which was written by Dr. Tyson and Dr. George Farid. Can you just quickly summarize what your contribution was to that so we can hopefully sell a couple copies? Well, I, I, wrote, I wrote about 95% of the text of the study and the study is included in there. And then uh, I, I wrote a chapter uh, the last chapter of the book, like explaining some some things in the study and what the significance of it is, um, you know, sort of comparing it to a bad way to, you know, this is one way to look at the uh, at the statistics. Um, here here is a contrast of bad ways to look at the statistics, uh, but what we have is consistency, um, you know, on our side in, in you know and you know, not to mention good experimental design, which very obviously means testing early, right? right. So. 
Okay, well, good stuff. I'll put a link to that. It is, uh, uh, if you wanted to buy Overcoming the COVID Darkness, we do have a, an Amazon affiliate link listed in the sponsors and partners or affiliates page uh, of Rounding the Earth. That link is already in the description. Um, so, yeah. So let us sign off, ladies and gentlemen. I have been Liam Sturgis. This has been yet another very informative, exciting, and hopefully inspiring episode of the Rounding the Earth podcast. Everyone, head on over to... Uh, watch Dr. Nass's um, streamed hearing, and uh, we will, I'm sure, follow up and discuss that in the next week or so. Thank you so much, everybody. Mm -hmm.